our brains are wired to have a need for explanation and understanding, so they use fiction to fill in when the facts are unavailable. They literally say in so many words, quote, one thing is certain, something awaits us. Well, maybe you're certain, but those of us who trust things like science a little bit more than a blown up episode of In Search Of, we have our doubts. All of these quote unquote explanations of an afterlife or near-death experience or anything in that strata are fallacious and need to be rejected in favor of an insistence of proof. We can speculate, we can study, we can search for answers, but we cannot and should not assign meaning and reason to things we don't fully understand. This is just another one of those instances where, as atheists, we need to be comfortable with the fact that we don't know and be bold enough to admit that we don't know. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective. And a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And it's time to get unbound. No, near death still isn't death. Even if all your body functions stop for a little while, dead is dead. And so far, no one has come back with any definitive proof of an afterlife. No matter what religious nutters or paid narrators want to call facts, the only facts in play about anything related to death and what may or may not come after is that we simply don't know and that no religion holds a definitive answer. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And in this episode, we're taking a look at the subject of near-death experiences. And for the atheists out there, you already know where this is going. For anyone else who might have the slightest inclination to use reports of NDEs as evidence of an afterlife, grab yourself a cup of Earl Grey and get comfy in your seat. We need to talk. But before we get into that, Shell has a CBB News segment, that's our Christians Behaving Badly segment, that is full to the brim with bakery goodness and <laughs> other tantalizing treats from the world of evangelical fuckery. What have you got for us this week, Shell? Oh, well, my very first story tonight features my most favorite grifter, Jim Baker. That lovable scamp is back. That lovable scamp, but he's having a real hard time these days. People just don't understand how difficult it is to do the grift and still maintain the facade of Christianity. Even guys like him who have plenty of experience. I mean, he's done pretty well for himself. He's got his freeze-dried meal buckets just in case his followers don't get snatched up into the rapture soon enough to miss out on all the miserable times. I'm sure he's making a big profit off of those. And he also had his colloidal silver that he was hawking oh, as yeah. cures for everything. That's my personal favorite of all of his snake oil offerings to date. <laughs> yeah, and uh, he's getting sued for that one. Mm. Yes. Yeah. You know, if he didn't grift... He wouldn't be Jim Baker. That's but true. Yes, after all, end times prophecies, really big business right now. Oh, sure. But yes. when aren't they? Yeah, With these true. people, when aren't they? This is their obsession. This, this is their yeah. blessed hope. They want all this shit to happen. They do, and I don't know why. Well, Jim's been hurt, my friends. Hurt by cancel culture. On his show of May 21st, he claimed that his imprisonment in the 80s was caused by cancel culture and no fault of his own. It had nothing to do with him being a felon. No, it had, it had to do with nothing to do with him being a felon or however many counts of fraud he was indicted on. Yeah. Here's a quote. They canceled me, Baker declared. Mainly it was the media, and the media got a Pulitzer Prize for putting me in prison, he continued. That's what they do. They reward the enemies of the gospel. We had the largest ministry of its type in the world, Heritage USA, Millions of people came there, and it was millions being saved around the world, and they literally took it away. It needed to go. It did. But he also accuses the federal government of editing a video that made him look really, really guilty. Of course, that's because he is. Well, yeah, there is that. Yes. Here's a quote from the article on Right Wing Watch. In 1989... 
televangelist Jim Baker was convicted by a jury of 24 counts of fraud and conspiracy and sentenced to 45 years in prison for having bilked members of his Praise the Lord ministry out of hundreds of millions of dollars. Baker had raised these funds by selling lifetime partnerships to viewers that entitled them to an annual free stay at his Heritage USA Christian theme park. But the number of partnerships sold far exceeded the park's capacity, and millions of dollars were diverted to fund Baker's lavish lifestyle. It sounds like gym memberships, you know, an infinite number of gym memberships, but no way to actually fulfill this promise to anybody. Not if everybody kept their promise. But here's the thing. People like theme parks. They don't like going to the gym quite as much. No. So people showed up at Heritage and they were looking for their fun time and they were looking for their free room and they didn't get it, did they? No. But uh, Baker's sentence was subsequently reduced on appeal and he was released from prison in 1994. Most of this, by the way, was brought to the surface by the discovery of a cover-up of hush money paid to a church secretary, Jessica Hahn, who had accused him of raping her. I was wondering when we were going to hear her name as part of this again. Honestly, a lot of articles do not mention her, but she's pretty much the reason it all came tumbling down. Oh, yeah. That caused the investigation, Mm -hmm. which revealed all of the grift. Yep. And the rest is history. Interesting history, especially if you were growing up as an evangelical teenager at the time. It was very interesting history. Yes. That ministry he touts, Heritage USA, was a Christian-themed water park and ministry center that was open from 1974 to 1989 until the IRS revoked its tax-exempt status. I have a question. You do? I do. So being that Heritage USA was a water park, could you consider yourself baptized if you went there? I guess. And apparently Jimmy Swagger slid down one of their water slides because it was part of a bet type thing where he raised money to bail these people out. Oh, brother. I think that he was actually in charge of Heritage USA for a while. I don't remember that. It's possible. Yeah. But... It wouldn't surprise me either. These people were all in cahoots in one way or another, whether it was direct, indirect, or just by virtue of the fact that they were all doing so much of the same kinds of shit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the the 80s were notable for Christian grift. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You know, it was especially embarrassing being in an Assemblies of God Christian college while Jim and Tammy Baker, who were ministers in the Assembly of God, mm-hmm. were just... They were being exposed for all the shit they were doing. Yeah. Yeah. We could talk a lot more about his crimes, but seriously, we'd need a several-part series. Well, Jim Baker has already become a several-part part series. series on this show. <laughs> True. So what difference does it make? True. More to come, I'm sure. Oh, the 80s and early 90s were not fun for Jim Baker, I imagine. But it was brought on himself and definitely not by cancel culture. Yeah, no. (laughs) Not at all. That's just so ridiculous. There's a difference between being canceled and being held accountable for the shit that you do. Yeah. There's a big difference. Yeah. I tend to think of cancel culture as consequence culture. Well, yeah. That's kind of, you know, when the words came out of my mouth, I was thinking pretty much the same thing. I mean, cancel culture is supposed to be a consequential sort of thing. Right. But when you look at the big picture and the way that these people behave and have behaved for decades and checked or unchecked, the stuff that they do is cancel worthy. So it's not a matter of they're being persecuted for this reason or in this way. It's that you do bad shit. Yeah. And when you do bad shit, bad things happen to you. Yes. Do stupid things, win stupid prizes. Absolutely. Yep. In lady shaming news, Christian mommy blogger Lori Alexander, a.k.a. the transformed wife, continues her fight to bring values back to the 50s, the 1850s. Well, yeah. Yeah. And that's... this, This woman, I mean, she is the... In my opinion, she's the human equivalent of nails on a chalkboard. Yeah. 
Oh, definitely. She's made news by saying that COVID was a blessing since it forced so many women to stay home and homeschool their kids and says that women should always be available to their husbands for sex, no matter how they feel. Now, we've known that part about her for quite a while. Yeah, we have. The whole thing of COVID being a blessing, you know, I think that she needs a 500,000 fuck you salute for that one. Yeah. Oh, seriously. She's I mean, terrible. half a million Americans dead and it was a blessing. Fuck you. Yeah. Now she's telling Christian wives to just submit to their husbands and stop being so matriarchal, darn it. Dag nabbit. Dag nabbit. Here's a quote. Women, I just want to encourage you today to get rid of your matriarchal spirit. God is a God of patriarchy. He created Adam first, and that's why we're not to preach or teach in the churches, because that's his authority structure. It has nothing to do with value, but it has to do with order. Just like in 1 Corinthians 14, right before God tells women to be silent in the churches. And it's a shame for women. No, no, no. Paul. Yeah. Paul. She tends to equate Paul with God. Paul tells women yeah. to be silent in the churches, and Paul was a person. Yes. And it's a shame for women to speak in the churches, and if they have a question, they need to ask their husbands at home. Right before that verse, it says that God is not a God of confusion, but a God of order. We don't need to be right. If you are always insisting on being right and having the last word, you will never have a good marriage. This absolutely tears down marriage. This matriarchal spirit that we women can so easily have, it belittles our husbands. It emasculates them. It causes them to feel unworthy. It's like the verse that says we tear down our homes with our hands. This is one of the greatest ways we tear homes down, is by being in control, having to have the last word, being right. God doesn't care that you are right. He cares that you're submissive and that you have a meek and quiet spirit. In her world, women are only of value relative to men. No matter who it is, the man comes first. Men may have invented patriarchy, but it's women like Lori Alexander who keep the others in line. I mean, yeah. this is so infuriating. I'm not even a woman. Yeah. Oh, and it's I infuriating. This, and it is fucking infuriating. This is a woman telling other women these things. Yes. It is just, it's rage inducing. Yeah, it is. But it's true. Men may have invented it, the patriarchy. But women keep other women in line. Right. We've talked about this before yes. on the show. We did an entire episode on this. You yeah. did an entire episode on right. this. And it's just, I remember being told by other women to have that meek and submissive spirit. And it was really hard for me to tamp down every impulse I had to correct you. Right. Or to express an opinion. Oh, yeah. It has taken me years. And then there would be times when a lot of it would just come out in a floodgate. And we would have a big fighter argument yeah. over whatever it was that had been bothering you for sometimes. I would have to imagine it would have had to have been years yeah. that some of these things were just sort of sitting there dormant. Right. And I'm glad. I'm glad we're not in that place I, at yeah. this point. I'm I really glad. I do not think that I ever did anything to perpetuate no. that or make you feel like you needed to be that way. No, honestly, but, no. Man, that thinking, it comes at women from all sides. Yes. And, you know, it doesn't matter how good your boyfriend or your husband treats you. You have it locked in your mind. Yeah. That this is what your role is. And regardless of what your partner wants you to be or allows you to be, you stay stuck in that place because you've been taught this from so many different sources for oh, so long that this is who you are, what you are, and this is who you are in relation to your husband, that it is very difficult oh, yeah. to break away from that. I mean, it took literal years, probably about a decade or more to come out of it. A decade after I got out of evangelicalism, before I actually started to feel like, oh, I'm actually a person with feelings that I can express yeah. my opinions. It may feel that long, but honestly, it's not that long. No, it doesn't. When you when yeah. you think about, we had that little way station in Wicca. Yeah. And that was about seven years. And we've only been out of that for a few years. Right. So it hasn't taken you anywhere near as long as you think. You see what they do to you? You yeah. see what they do? It's like, oh, it's taken me all this time. No, once you started figuring this shit out, you really just started figuring it out. Yeah. 
And no, I don't think that it took anywhere near that long. Well, I mean, we did have another way station in Episcopal Church. A little bit, yeah. Which honestly was probably one of the ways in which I started coming out of that thinking. Right. Because they let you think in the Episcopal Church. Yes, they do. So That was one yeah. thing that I really liked about them. They identify as evangelical, which is odd, but they are not the same flavor it's, of evangelical as like the Assemblies of God or the Baptist no. Church or anything like that. The way they use the word and the way that Assemblies of God people at Al uses the word are much different. Yeah, they're very different. Yeah. That's for sure. So another two wonderful tales from the world of evangelical fuckery. I said that at the beginning, but I, yeah. I, I, I like that. I like the, I like phrase. the phrase evangelical, evangelical fuckery, fuckery because that's what this is. And I do like that we've brought this back. I think that yeah. it's, it does actually add a lot. And good stories. You come up with some good shit. I and, try. Uh, yeah. I really like what you come up with and the spin that you put on it. And it's fine to put a little bit of a humorous spin on it. That's fine. But these really are serious issues. Yeah. And Jim Baker, how many people has he hurt? How many lives have been oh damaged yeah. by the shit that he does? And with this kind of thinking about women and the role of women right. in society and in the church and in their families, this kind of toxicity yeah. is serious. So we take a little bit of a lighthearted approach to it, but understand that if we're covering these things and it's getting the attention of a lot of other people who think like us, it's something that the general public right. probably really needs to take a little bit of a closer look at. It's just easier, I think, sometimes to look at it when it's presented from the standpoint of humor. Just understanding that this is what's happening out there, especially if you're coming out of this and starting to see all of this stuff with new eyes, that's a good thing. Yeah. And if your attention is getting focused on some of the same things that ours is, and at least in the same realm and arena, the same types of issues and social problems that arise out of this kind of thinking, then you're on the right track. You are so on the right track. And just keep listening. Keep consuming the content that we produce for you. And definitely try to discover some new stuff along the way because we're not the only ones out here saying what we're saying. But like I've said before, I think that we give it a unique voice. But then again, so does everybody else out there. Right. When we cover a certain thing and it's covered on another show, well, one just kind of augments and enhances the other as far as I'm concerned. And in the spirit of this is what we do and why we do it, just want to let you know that our Patreon is active at patreon.com slash Unbound Podcast Network. And starting at the $5 level, you can help other people get and stay unbound. And you can show your appreciation for the work that we do here and the diligence with which we do it. We take very few breaks and we put a decent amount of work every week into bringing you something that's going to be good quality. So if you agree that the quality is there and that you might actually like to see us up that quality a little bit, maybe, because, yeah, you know what? I'm not always 100% happy with the production value that we get from sitting here at our dining room table. <laughs> but yeah. but you know what? I I keep saying the same thing over and over. You need the quality aspect of it so that people listen, but the messaging is way more important. So those of you who come back week after week, once again, thank you. And if you have the means to help us out, we could really use your support starting at five bucks a month. Just a fiver is going to do worlds of good if we get a bunch of people out there to give us that five bucks a month. We'll be able to do more with this show. We'll be able to expand. We'll be able to provide you with new content, more content, new shows. I've got so many ideas spinning around in my head, but like I keep saying, we need the resources for me to liberate the time. So if you like what you're hearing, you want to hear more and you want to see what else I've got up my sleeve, then go over to patreon.com slash unbound podcast network and show us a little bit of support for those of you who flat out can't keep listening, keep getting what you need out of the show. We're here for you and we're going to keep doing what we're doing for as long as we can do it with that hope that along the way we get to fling one more starfish back into the surf and help some people get their lives back from this religion that packages love is hate and hate is love because yeah. people need to get and stay unbound. That's why we're here. That's why we do what we do. Keep listening. Keep getting what you need. Tell someone new about the show this week. That's all we ask. And with that, onward into 
our main segment. So once again, something came out of my mouth during our last episode and my brain said, there's an episode in there. So like I almost always do in these situations, I listen to myself and set out to research the subject of near-death experiences, pretty much knowing what I was going to uncover. We talk about this in the three-episode arc that we did on mortality and the afterlife, but I wanted to get into more specific terms this time and show how science may be zeroing in on at least one major cause for NDEs, that's near-death experiences. And spoiler alert, the explanation is 100% Jesus-free. There are a number of similarities among people who have experienced NDEs, and I'm pretty sure even I have experienced one, even though the circumstances surrounding mine were radically different from the norm. I think I, quote, saw what I did because I was convinced that I was about to die, and my brain just sort of took over from there. Now, I've talked about this in our episode on dealing with your own mortality. So just to give a quick recap, Shell and I were in a bad accident in October of 1993. We were in a 1993 Ford Escort, and we were plowed into by a drunk driver in a white Chevy pickup. We were struck from behind, shot about 500 feet down the road, spun out three times, and flipped over twice. We then came to a rest upright in a ditch. And to this day, I have no idea why we weren't more badly injured, but we walked away. We did. We walked away with just a few scrapes and a couple awful cases of whiplash. Whiplash, I've learned, is kind of interesting. It sucks, but it's interesting Mm. because for a week, the body aches felt about the same as having the flu. It was the flu without a fever. It was very odd. But that was it. That was the worst of it. The effect on my belief in the spiritual side of NDEs, however, well, that went on a bit longer. Mm. In most of the stories I read and the clinical accounts I researched for this episode, people's brains are usually in shutdown mode when they experience NDEs. They are legitimately dying when it happens, but not dead. In my case, I don't think I ever lost consciousness, but you can put me down for one key thing that's common to NDEs in those moments, the life review. I experienced this. I think I've mentioned it once before, but if you're new, this is the whole seeing your life pass before your eyes thing. I literally lived 22 years in a matter of seconds. I mean, I saw everything. I experienced moving out of Brooklyn when I was about just under four years old, okay? I experienced kindergarten, and I remembered things that were in the classroom, these cardboard blocks that we used to play with. I remembered all of it. I saw it, and I heard Peter and the Wolf playing on the record player in the classroom. I remember the first time I got my bike to stay upright. I remembered sledding down the hill behind my grandmother's house. I experienced all of my surgeries and recoveries, which wasn't all that pleasant. High school, falling in love for the first time, college, that was really not pleasant. But then there was also getting married and the things that had happened more recently. All of this literally took a few seconds. If I had passed out, I had no idea, but I don't think I did. And if I did, it was also a matter of seconds. But honestly, I remember the accident vividly too. It was kind of like a parallel thing. I knew that I was in the middle of this accident, but this was happening at the same time. So I also wasn't terribly panicked, which is another part of NDEs is this sense of calm. And I really did have that sense of calm in the middle of this too. So like I said, I happen to have some experience in this area. And for years, I really thought the whole experience quote unquote meant something. Well, it did. If by meant something, you mean that it meant I thought on my feet, made sure my wheels were straight and that the car was aimed away from traffic. It also meant that they're right about seatbelts and how they save lives. But if the experience meant anything, it meant that. As for the life review, fuck if I know how that happened, but I do know it's happened before to other people. So to me, that means that there has to be some natural explanation for it. Not supernatural, just plain natural. My interest in this particular subject goes way back. I mean, back to when I was single digits, that young, okay? 
1978, there was a movie that came out called Beyond and Back. I don't think that I saw it immediately after it was released. I just have this memory of it being just a little bit later on. But I do remember when and I remember the circumstances surrounding it. And let's just say this is not a movie that you really want a seven-year-old watching. But this is where we were. So the movie Beyond and Back is one that IMDb politely lists as a documentary. It is not. At very best, it's a docudrama. No real people, just actors reenacting other people's stories and doing it pretty badly. The acting is on the same level as the Mark IV movies, and that's A Thief in the Night, A Distant Thunder, the movies in that series. I saw some parallels in the levels of acting in this. Now, the Gamcast guys, that's god-awful movies for anyone who still is not familiar. And if you're not familiar with this podcast, you should really get familiar with it. But they actually covered this movie like two years ago. And in their episode, they made fleeting mention of something I found interesting that also shows up in the Wikipedia for this cinematic trash fire that we call Beyond and Back. This is a direct quote from the Wikipedia. The movie was filmed by cinematographer Henning Schellerup, a veteran of late 60s and early 70s porn films, such as Come One, Come All and Heterosexualis. Wow. Yeah, wow. With Wow was my initial reaction to that, too. Through chuckles. A, a, a chuckly wow. Um, chuckly, is that a word? I have no idea. It's also been speculated that he brought a few of his actors along for the ride, and looking at some of these people, I would have to say, yeah, that kind of fits. There are people in this movie that definitely fit the 70s porn motif. I also learned why this whole thing looks so familiar watching it more than 40 years later. Turns out, the guy who directed Beyond and Back, James L. Conway, also directed one episode of In Search Of, the one on Noah's Ark, as well as several episodes of shows like Hunter, MacGyver, Star Trek The Next Generation, and Star Trek Voyager. Yes, he kept getting work after this, despite everything about it. This movie was pretty much a drawn-out episode of In Search Of, and if you want to be technical about a three-episode arc of In Search Of, the only thing that was missing from the equation here was Leonard Nimoy, but there was still a narrator. Yeah. Who was about as over the top as Leonard Nimoy was on <laughs> In Search Of. Now, I bring this up because at the ripe old age of seven years old, my mother and I had gone to the drive-in for a second-run screening of the movie Grease. The same night, the B-movie, for reasons I still can't wrap my brain around, was this one, Beyond and Back. They had pretty aggressively promoted this movie on TV, too. I had seen commercials for it yeah. more than once. Apparently, the studio either thought a lot of it or my memories are just not good enough to know when I saw it. And it could have been during a lot of those. You remember those Sunday morning church type shows? Yeah. Shows like Insight. Yes. And Christopher um, the Christopher, Christopher Close Up. I almost said yeah. Christopher Columbus. <laughs> <laughs> Christopher Close Up. There were there were a few shows like that. Yeah. Some were dramas and some were more like talk shows. They may have been running ads for this movie during those. And for whatever reason, as a kid, I kind of liked this content. I don't know. I used to watch quite a lot of it. This is The Life was another one. You remember that one? Yeah. Yeah. I I do. It was really, I'm really fuzzy on it, though. Even Davy and Goliath got kind of sandwiched in there, too. Oh, yeah. Weird-ass content that I was into as a child. Yeah. But this is what I was watching, so that's probably where I saw it. There are a few things that I remember a lot about this movie and things that stuck with me and scared me for a long time. There was a lot that scared me about this movie, but it was one of my mother's major trips down the evangelical rabbit hole. Not the first one, I don't think. I think that was just a little bit earlier than this, but seeing this movie, I could tell that it was doing something to her while we were sitting there watching it. The impact on me as a seven-year-old and all this scary shit and everyone talking about dying for an hour and a half was not fun. No. But I do remember one particular part of this movie that my mother completely threw a shit fit over. And it was the part where this couple is, I believe they're in a plane crash. I think that's the way that I just watched this drivel like two days ago and I still can't remember. My brain is just rejecting it. (laughs) But I think this was the one where a couple was in a plane crash and 
the husband dies and the wife lives and she recounts this very elaborate near-death experience where she sees her husband in this new suit that he bought and he's barefoot now i don't know what it was about that but the fact that he was barefoot freaked me out as a kid i'm not sure why Maybe it was just because my mother was having such a visceral reaction to this particular scene that it stuck with me. That could be it. But her reaction was very visceral. And it was one line in particular that really got her was when the wife said that she saw Jesus and the way that she said it. Jesus, I saw Jesus was the way that she said it. And when those words came out of her mouth, I could see the look on my mother's face and she like gasped. She had this very visceral reaction to it. That kind of sealed her belief in this. Yeah. It really just sealed her belief in, you know, this is what we have to wait for. And I think that it definitely didn't keep her grounded in all the evangelical stuff then. But I do think that it was probably one of the things that kind of steered her back in that direction. The reaction to it was, it was a once in a lifetime thing for a kid my age to watch his mother go through after two hours of fun times and music to, Jesus, I saw Jesus, and like a dozen people dying in this movie. So yeah, it was it was a weird night for, for, the, uh, for the fledgling spider, but the effect that it had on mom, oh, and I, I will never, ever, ever forget that. But I, I got curious. I got really, really curious when I decided to do this particular topic. And I actually decided to pull this movie up on YouTube. Just for shits and giggles, if you want to take a look, it's out there. Otherwise, just listen to episode 203 of God Awful Movies, and you never, ever have to experience it firsthand. Yeah. They do a really good job of tearing it apart. And when I say tearing it apart... They really, really, really tear this one apart, like worse than some of the ones I've seen. Mm. Watching this movie again 40 years later, there were things that really, really just got my goat. And also watching it as an atheist, because even at seven years old, I believed in God. So that made it even scarier. Mm. At least parts of it, it made scarier. But I love the part where the narrator says, all religions teach that there's a heaven and a hell. Well, no. Actually... All religions do not teach this. And it's one of those very superlative kind of statements that keeps showing up in this movie. They keep trying to tell us that what they are presenting to us is factual. And they say it in so many words at the very end. We've presented the facts. Yeah, okay. Facts based on stories told by people who can't prove anything they claim to have seen. You know, as far as I'm concerned, those are some very shaky facts at least in search of made the disclaimer that the information they were presenting was based in art on theory and conjecture and that it was one explanation for all of this not just the only one that's a real paraphrase but they would say it at the beginning of every episode just so that you understood look this is entertainment okay try not to take it too seriously but this movie oh no 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 there was none of that they were dead fucking serious and they wanted you to know I also thought that it was interesting that they had the nerve to bring in things like reincarnation and ESP as part of this whole thing. It's like, how many supernatural quote-unquote phenomena are you going to try and cover in this one movie that is supposed to be about near-death experience? But the whole concept of reincarnation and these stories that people have allegedly told about their past lives and all of this, it's all anecdotal. There's no proof to any of it. And yeah, I've heard some weird shit. I've heard some weird shit that you got to wonder how these people knew some of the things that they knew. And I have no clue. I have no explanation for some of the stuff that I've seen unless it was completely fabricated, which is a very distinct possibility. Because why else would people put themselves in the public eye over stuff like this? That, to me, is, is the ultimate question there. Not whether or not it's real, because I know it's not. But damn, some of these people are pretty good at this. Mm-hmm. And they do a decent job of, of pulling a fast one. I don't know how they do it, but whatever their angle is, they're damn good at what they do. We also learn in this movie that if you time it just right, you can photograph someone's soul coming out of their body. Um, that was okay. something that somebody attempted and claimed to be successful at. We also learned that souls have mass. There okay. was an experiment, this dude 
did this experiment on people who were close to death and weighed them at the time of death and allegedly they're supposed to lose like an ounce or around an ounce at the time of death and that's the soul leaving the body and I mean debunked nine ways to Sunday probably long before this movie even came out and the movie ends by speaking in very definitive terms about what will happen to us when we die as if these people actually know we're told definitively definitively there's nothing about conjecture theory or anything like it here we are told with certainty that this is what a near-death experience is and this is what will happen to you if you experience this thing you will float down a long narrow tunnel you will see yourself floating above your own body Departed friends and relatives will appear before you. You will experience a divine presence. There will be the sensation of actually getting up and leaving the room. A doorway will appear before you and you'll know that you're at the point of no return. And if you choose to turn back, you'll squeeze back through the tunnel. An intense warm white light will appear and all of a sudden you'll just be back in your body. And this is the one that really, really got me. I mean, forget being told that I'm being presented with facts. Forget being told that all religions teach that there's a heaven and a hell. This is the thing that really, really pissed me off. As an atheist watching this movie 40 years later, they literally say in so many words, quote, one thing is certain, something awaits us. Well, maybe you're certain, but those of us who trust things like science a little bit more than a blown up episode of In Search Of, We have our doubts. We have our doubts of the certainty of this and just the deceptive nature of it. And just another example of how these people use fear to get their points across. I don't know if this was an evangelical production, but boy, oh boy, did they know who their target audience was. They totally knew who their target was. And the whole fear factor thing that we've talked about multiple times on this show, very, very much at play in this movie. Because there is also a part where not everybody goes to heaven. Oh, no, 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 no. If you commit suicide, you can expect to go to hell. And that's made very clear in this movie, too. And there's one scene where somebody actually does see hell before she comes back, too. So, again, the fear factor, major, major, major player, right down to the music that they use at the end. The closing music, I'm listening to this, and it sounded vaguely like Jesus Loves Me, but in a minor key. It was just fucking eerie and almost as bad as the music at the end of poltergeist but nowhere near as well produced yeah but the entire experience of this movie was just i when i was a kid it was scary and unsettling as an adult and as an atheist it was just fucking infuriating yeah the way that they presented things it's like if somebody sold say a nutritional supplement and made grandiose claims about what it can do, that it can cure this and that, that it's a remedy for this, that, and the other. Well, they'd get sued. But these assholes in 1978 made this movie and literally, literally, at the end of this thing, told us that everything that we just saw was factual and these things will happen to you if you have a near-death experience. And it's such total bullshit. I think I've talked more than enough about the movie Let's get into the actual facts and thoughts on this thing because there are very few facts that are actually associated with it. Oh, yeah, just one last thing about Beyond and Back. On a personal note, every time they cut to the narrator segment, I just kept thinking, it's just a jump to the left. (laughs) And I'll bet you dollars to donuts I'm not alone. So that movie was the first exposure I really had to the concept of life after death. And that one story toward the end about hell literally terrified me for years but after watching the movie i came down with a bad case of blue car syndrome and started seeing this concept popping up everywhere i saw it in popular media shows like real people and that's incredible both took a shot at covering the topics that were in this movie i want to say there was a time life book series too i just feel like there was a series called life after death i think it could have been the book mysteries of the unexplained Possibly. It could have been in Because I have that book, and I'm pretty sure there's a section on life after death. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not going crazy. It's actually a thing. It was actually a thing, or it was, like, part of a thing. Right. 
Right. That's probably why I couldn't find it in just a basic Google search because, yeah, that wasn't the title of it. And it was part of that series and possibly just a section in one of the books. Yeah. But I know that it was out there because I remember stumbling upon it and getting freaked out by it again. This is just a couple of years later, maybe 80, 81, 82, somewhere in that neighborhood. Actually, I think it was earlier because I don't think that my grandfather had died at that point. So, yeah, just all this bugaboo shit that was shoved into my head that night. It just kept seeing this stuff everywhere. I do know there were also various TV evangelists and other charlatans out there that bought a lot of daytime airtime to scare people about the subject, too. At this point, I want to look at some of the other common reports that people have of their experiences and take a look at what science has to say about them. Spoiler alert, not a whole lot of questions surrounding this have been answered, but most medical and neuroscience professionals agree. There are natural explanations for all of them, and the likelihood of there being an afterlife is very, very slim. So what is it that people are actually experiencing? What probable explanations exist? Well, Let's take a look at some of them. First and foremost, drugs. Drugs play a big role in NDEs. And we're talking about drugs that the body manufacturers and those that can cause someone to flatline when they're administered to the body, those used to revive people when they flatline. There are also some patterns with NDEs that are too common to ignore in terms of circumstance and experience. I found a great article on Scientific American that at least corroborates some of what I believe about this. And, you know, I that word tastes bad coming out of my mouth these days, but this is one of those uncomfortable instances where I have to use the word belief because while many, if not all of the theories around what NDEs actually are, are plausible, none of this has actually been proven yet. And honestly, while cancer is still a thing, I'm okay with them not delving too much deeper into this. It's something that we're just really never going to get the answer to because none of us is ever going to literally die and come back. Near-death experiences, your body might be shutting down, but if it comes back up, no brain damage, no nothing, you just sort of reboot. Um, Sorry, you didn't die. You may have flatlined. Certain things may have stopped working for a few minutes, but when they came back online, so did you. And if you're still here, you didn't die. Period, end of story. It just didn't happen. According to the article, there have been numerous studies centered on the accounts of people who experience NDEs and the language of those accounts. I think it's interesting that these descriptions match up the way that they do. The way people describe what they experienced has many common threads, and it's those common threads that theists point to as quote-unquote proof that the afterlife is a thing. In reality, all it proves is the similar genetic makeup of most members of our species and some of the common chemical processes that take place in the body, particularly the brain, when the body is in distress and likely to shut down. And I'll say it again, people are not all that different from each other, so it does not surprise me in the least that you're hearing the same things from a lot of different people, from a lot of different places, not just in the United States, all over the world. You hear similar accounts. That doesn't surprise me. The Reader's Digest version of this account is that most NDEs are the result of drug-induced hallucinations or other reactions to the release of chemicals at key points in the shutdown process of the brain. What I find particularly interesting is how they arrived at that conclusion. They used two sets of data, a large collection of descriptions of NDEs and the descriptions of experiences by people under the controlled influence of some specific types of drugs. And by controlled, I mean either administered to them or that they did on their own. And here's a short quote from the article. Quote, the researchers drew on a large collection of NDE stories they had collected over many years. To compare NDEs with drug experiences, The researchers took advantage of a large collection of drug experience anecdotes. Bookmark that word. It's significant. A large collection of drug experience anecdotes found in the Arrowhead Experience vaults, an open source collection of accounts describing firsthand experiences with drugs and various substances. I have linked to this in the show notes if you want to take a look at it. They analyzed the effects of a number of classes of drugs, looking for similarities between observable drug interactions and the description of NDEs. 
And here's another quote. Each of the drugs included in these comparisons could be categorized by their ability to interact with a specific neurochemical system in the brain. And each drug fell into a specific category. Antipsychotic, stimulant, psychedelic, depressant or sedative, deliriant, or hallucinogen, end quote. But when they set out looking for parallels, they came up short in all but one specific class of drug. Surprise, it was hallucinogens. LSD and DMT were major players in the study. They found that, quote, the famous hallucinogen LSD was as similar as ketamine to NDEs when the near-death event was caused by cardiac arrest. That's another significant part of this. A huge number of NDE accounts originate with the patient going into cardiac arrest. This is the common thread that I mentioned earlier. It's one area with lots of shared experiences and parallels, and in a huge number of occasions involves the influence of ketamine. More on that in a minute. Now, not all people who flatline or find themselves at death's door go through this, and not only cardiac arrest patients go through it either. In fact, I know many who have suffered life-threatening heart attacks who experienced absolutely nothing while they were flatlined, my grandfather included. He reported having lost time. That's it. It was as if he slept through it. And yet, he had been quote-unquote clinically dead for over two minutes. But people do respond differently to various drugs, and some have very mild reactions, where other people might have ones that are much more profound and detailed. The article also says that, quote, the study compared the stories of 625 individuals who reported NDEs with the stories of more than 15,000 individuals who had taken one of 165 different psychoactive drugs. I didn't even know there were 165 psychoactive drugs. I'm behind. <laughs> um, when those stories were linguistically analyzed, similarities were found between recollections of near-death and drug experiences for those who had taken a specific class of drug. One drug in particular, ketamine, led to experiences very similar to near-death experience. This may mean that the near-death experience may reflect changes in the same chemical system in the brain that is targeted by drugs like ketamine. Ketamine is a major component of surgical anesthetics and is also a hallucinogen. And it can have adverse effects on people with heart conditions, particularly unknown heart conditions, and it can easily send someone with specific risk factors into cardiac arrest along with a plethora of NDE-like effects during the resuscitative process. And one of the major things with this is a little thing called out-of-body experiences. Sorry, I've had this happen on weed. Weed is a hallucinogen. Right. And it may not be a really strong one, but every now and then you get a good chunky nug that you don't know how strong <laughs> yeah. it's going to be. And some weird shit can happen. So I have had the equivalent of an out-of-body experience doing weed a couple of times. Yeah. It's not something that happens often. But I have experienced it to varying degrees. And again from the article, quote, some NDE phenomena cannot be easily explained with our current knowledge of human physiology and psychology. For instance, at a time when they were unconscious, patients could accurately describe events as well as report being able to view their bodies, quote, from an out-of-body spatial perspective. In two different studies of patients who had survived a cardiac arrest, those who had reported leaving their bodies could describe accurately their resuscitation procedures or unexpected events, whereas others, quote, described incorrect equipment and procedures, unquote. I think that the accuracy aspect of this has to do directly with how alert and observant the patient is when procedures begin. Do they arrive at the ER already arresting, or do they have time to take in the sights and sounds around them? Are they paying close attention to what's happening? Are they memorizing faces, voices, and sounds without realizing it? It doesn't seem that far-fetched to me that the brain can draw on short-term and working memory to construct reasonable facsimiles of details when acted upon by a strong hallucinogen like DMT or, let's even say, ketamine. In cases where accuracy is a little bit lacking, I would assume, and it is just an assumption, that the circumstances were much different for the patient just before. They might still have quote-unquote out-of-body experiences, but their brains lack the auditory and visual data to construct an accurate picture, so the brain does what it does best in those moments. It makes shit up. That's most of it. Either that, or they're just looking for attention and parroting things they've heard about NDEs. That's also very plausible, possible, whatever. 
But let's look at the first explanation. Our brains make shit up all the time. They remember things with details that are way off from the way things really are. Things like the Mandela effect are viable examples of this. Commonly misquoted movie lines and song lyrics fit into this category too. And even different perspectives on things and events, physical as well as mental, paint different pictures in people's minds. Interview five witnesses to an auto accident and you'll usually get five different accounts with a few common details. See? Our brains do this all the time. They make up things to fill in the blanks in our experiences and understandings. So, when someone is wheeled into the ER unconscious, it's possible they experience some of the things that are common to NDEs, but they don't have all the data. They may feel a separation from their bodies. They may feel that sense of painlessness that comes with the release of endorphins. They may have that peaceful, easy feeling that comes with a massive release of serotonin, but ask them to describe their surroundings and their brains start picking images and events from movies, medical shows, and yes, even those things that they've heard about NDEs to fill in the details. It's probably less about lying and more about brain trickery when it comes to those less accurate accounts because our brains are wired to have a need for explanation and understanding, so they use fiction to fill in when the facts are unavailable. Kind of like how so many people believe in God. Our brains demand explanations of things and God is an easy fix-all in all those instances. As for being able to recount things they hear, there are numerous reports of people in seemingly unconscious states being able to perceive sounds, voices, and more. This is why we are encouraged to talk to coma patients and those in unconscious states. There's a chance they can hear, be it actively or passively. Those active hearers give better accounts of things that happen during those moments. At least that's what I would speculate. Right. Now, there is a definite scientific disconnect that the article definitely does a much better job of admitting than Beyond and Back ever did. Mm -hmm. The article does concede that there's a definite disconnect between the phenomena of near-death experience and trustable science, but only because all of the data is subjective. We can't tell what's really going on inside people's heads or how much of what they recount or facsimiles created by the brain based on things they've heard about NDEs. As for the Arrowhead collection, who knows how truthful these people were being or if they even took the drugs they said they did. In most instances, they probably thought they took LSD, for example, but what if it was actually peyote or ayahuasca or psilocybin? These things matter, and they are largely impossible to backtrace. That doesn't negate the fact that so many people have similar experiences and describe them in similar ways, though. I personally think that the effects of NDEs correlate closely with people's perceptions of the afterlife, and here's why. I personally think that the effects of NDEs correlate closely with people's perceptions of what the afterlife should be, according to their religion, their beliefs, or just their wants. And the article spends a good bit of time on the subject of ketamine and how it affects people having NDEs. It says, quote, Linking near-death experiences and the experience of taking ketamine is provocative, yet it is far from conclusive that both are because of the same chemical events in the brain. The types of studies needed to demonstrate this hypothesis, such as measuring neurochemical changes in the critically ill, would be both technically and ethically challenging. The authors propose, however, a practical application of this relation. Because near-death experience can be transformational, and have profound and lasting effects on those who experience them, including a sense of fearlessness about death, the authors propose that ketamine could be used therapeutically to induce an NDE-like state in terminally ill patients as a, quote, preview of what they might experience so as to relieve their anxieties about death. Those benefits need to be weighed against the risks of potential ketamine side effects, which include feelings of panic or extreme anxiety, effects that could defeat the purpose of the intervention. That last part to me is very significant. Kind of sounds like this stuff can put you in heaven or it can put you in hell, depending on how some of the other drugs involved in the process relate and interact. It's all speculative, and I don't think any of it answers the question of what actually happens at the point of death. It does, however, provide at least some anecdotal insight into where concepts like the afterlife, heaven, and hell come from. It's also important to understand that there are also plenty of experts out there who have studied this phenomenon from a purely secular standpoint, and here's just a summary of what they say. Everything that we experience comes from our brain. We put things in, or more to the point, the brain gathers its own data, and those things make up 
everything we know. And it's not just pictures, it's concepts, ideas, song lyrics, significant life events, everything we learn. Heaven and hell are learned concepts. And like with dreams, and even in the skewing of certain memories to make them more situationally relevant, our brains have various defense mechanisms. As the brain shuts down, it does its best to shut off things like pain and fear. And how many movies and TV shows have we seen where people under extreme circumstances tell each other stories to divert attention or calm someone down? We do that because that's how our brain responds to the stressful things that get heaped onto it. It looks for a way of escape and the most effective tool it has at that moment when we start slipping away is storytelling. And at that point, quote, like a town that loses power one neighborhood at a time, local brain regions go offline one after another. The mind, whose substrate is whichever neurons remain intact, then does what it always does. It tells a story shaped by a person's experience, memory, and cultural expectations. I think that is the most sound and level-headed explanation for this that I have ever seen, period. And those three concepts that they bring up are definitely significant, so let's take a look at them in turn. First, there's experience. I've already established that everything our brains do and the signals it transmits depend entirely on the data that the brain collects. The more grandiose stories we hear about the afterlife, the more the brain has in its library to concoct a good story. Remember, most Christians will never crack open their Bibles long enough to gain an understanding of what the Christian heaven actually is and just how much it actually sucks. So their brains latch onto the Sunshine and Daisies accounts they hear from the pulpit about how grandma is in a better place, she isn't in pain anymore, she's enjoying reuniting with her family and friends and spending real quality time with Jesus. When our time comes, we remember the positives and we start applying those things to ourselves. It's at that point where a lot of people will start hallucinating about parents, siblings, spouses, and even pets appearing out of nowhere and calling them to the quote unquote other side. All the things we've experienced, relationships, religious concepts, and mind images we've created for what the scenario looks like come bubbling to the surface and they arrange themselves into a story. That's the experience part. Memory is the next thing they bring up. I don't think that most people who have never experienced a life review understand just how much detail our brains actually hang on to, but the stores of memories we retain are massive and often difficult to tap in our normal conscious state. Now, our brains begin firing off chemicals that make it easier to see and remember things when certain things happen. This is evident in the fact that this happened to me. Okay, again, just anecdotal. I'm just a person. There's no clinical evidence of this. I just know what I saw. And all of a sudden, our glass darkly experience of memory can become crystal clear. We remember the good times we had with people who have passed. We put thoughts in our heads at their funerals about someday seeing them again or a funeral director or pastor puts them there. The memories of standing over caskets and concocting reunion scenarios stay there. And the people we love the most and miss the most wind up at the beginning of the queue when it comes time for our brains to tell us this last all-important story. Then there's the cultural expectations aspect of it. We also remember the pictures we created or that were put into our heads about every step of the dying process the light at the end of the tunnel, the reunion with loved ones, what heaven will look like, who we'll meet there. And while I don't know just how far out brains are able to take the story, I do know that they can burn out telling it. In the case of an NDE, the story gets interrupted and we then return to consciousness. But one very significant thing to understand is that unless the story has been fabricated, there are few, if any, Hindus who come back from a near-death experience proclaiming, I saw Jesus and he was not happy that I was a Hindu. We don't see that. We don't see Christians coming back to warn people about Allah. No, Christians have very Christian NDE experiences. Hindus have very Hindu NDE experiences, and so on and so on. There is no uniformity in the cultural or religious details. NDEs depend completely on experience, memory, and expectation to put together the individual person's story. There are, however, some specific details that show up in a lot of NDE accounts that could help, could help answer questions about the chemical processes involved with dying. Many, many NDE accounts include several of the same elements. 
out-of-body experiences, emotionless darkness, removal of pain and fear, intense light or a light at the end of the tunnel are just a few. It's interesting to note that that last one, the light at the end of the tunnel, happens at other times, particularly in some epileptic seizures. In fact, some epilepsy patients claim to experience some or all of these effects that are common to NDEs, making it that much clearer that these things originate and are executed within the human brain, not with external or spiritual sources. According to WebMD, there are also a number of negative sensations associated with seizures that don't typically show up in NDEs. This seems to lend credibility to the notion of how specific variables affect the perceptions and sensations the brain is experiencing and reporting to the body when it is under different kinds of stress. There are details that are similar, but some that are very different as well. Seizures with aura, that's an interesting name for it considering what the effect can be. Seizures with aura do sometimes present with some or all of the following. Flashing or flickering lights, blurry vision, dark spots, partial vision loss, or seeing things that aren't there, aka hallucinations. A feeling of deja vu, panic, or detachment. Hearing voices or buzzing, ringing, or drumming sounds. Unusual, typically unpleasant smells. Sudden acidic, bitter, salty, sweet, or metallic tastes and a sudden strong emotion like joy, sadness, fear, or anger. So there are similarities in there, but there are also some radical differences. And the even more interesting thing about these details is how they do seem to cross cultural lines in ways that others don't. Eventually, we may have a more comprehensive understanding of this process, but for now, our brains have managed to keep the specific details at least somewhat of a mystery. Maybe ketamine or another chemical like it produced in the brain is responsible for all of it. We have hypotheses and anecdotal evidences, but no proofs. The Scientific American article then goes on to explain why the origins of these experiences are so difficult to pinpoint. Quote, the underlying neurological sequence of events in a near-death experience is difficult to determine with any precision because of the dizzying variety of ways in which the brain can be damaged. Furthermore, NDEs do not strike when the individual is lying inside a magnetic scanner or has his or her scalp covered by a net of electrodes." Unquote. The article goes on to reiterate that cardiac arrest seems to be the one health condition that opens the window of understanding of NDEs the widest. Does the answer lie in the understanding of this process? Only time and responsible research will tell. But one thing we've learned about NDEs is that they do seem to happen under some very specific circumstances and often not at all under others. We know that they're governed by neurochemical responses, but there are still too many variables in the equation to create a reliable map or chronology of events when it comes to NDEs. The bullet list I mentioned shows some commonalities, but the actual sequence of events simply cannot be mapped. Now for the big question. Does what we know about NDEs negate any notion of an afterlife? The answer here is simple. No, it does not. Does that mean that there must be an afterlife? No, it does not. But the evidence does seem to suggest that we get whatever we expect, at least in a momentary or temporary way. Well, what if you're an atheist and you expect nothing? Well, okay, I can only speak for myself here, but to answer the question, number one, I know that what my religion taught me is bunk, so evidenced by no one of another religion emerging from an NDE warning the world that they've met Jesus and he's real. Two, I know that as many mistakes as I have made, all the quote-unquote bad things I've done don't add up to being deserving of eternal torment. Three, I know that I have no clue what, if anything, comes after. And four, I know that the likelihood of anything existing for me beyond this plane of existence is very, very slim. As for what I think, I think that I will enjoy whatever my brain whips up for the final scene of my life if I'm not killed instantly in an accident or something similar. If that happens, I doubt I'll experience anything, especially if my brain is damaged. I think that any perception I have of dying or the things that happen right before will quickly dissipate and I will simply lose my perceptions and expire. If my brain chooses to send me off with a perception of an afterlife that I perceive to just keep going and going, that's a-okay. I'll settle for experiencing something interesting until I can't experience it anymore. That would be nice. You know, just to have that last dream be something like 
really fucking cool, that would, yeah. be, that would be nice. But the bottom line is we have no idea and we can't really steer this ship. What we get is what we get. And that's that. Now, I'd like to leave you tonight with some kind of definitive proof that explains what NDEs are and what they represent. But until science does, neither can I. And none of us can. Your pastor can't. Your favorite relative can't. Your brother can't. No one can. Do NDEs have particular significance? Well, from a scientific standpoint or from the standpoint of understanding ourselves better? Certainly they do. From the standpoint of some kind of higher significance and relevance to our overall existence, not so much. We still die, eventually. I think that science, though, has done a very good job of identifying elements of the experience and relating them back to natural, physical causes. Of course I'd like to know more. Wouldn't we all? But this is just another one of those instances where, as atheists, we need to be comfortable with the fact that we don't know and be bold enough to admit that we don't know and probably never will. We can speculate, we can study, we can search for answers, but we cannot and should not assign meaning and reason to things we don't fully understand. That's one of the biggest dangers of religion. It attempts to fill in the blanks with details that can never be proven or verified. Some of those details are designed to comfort, some are designed to frighten or intimidate, just like that scene in Beyond and Back where that woman allegedly went to hell. I still remembered it so vividly when I was watching it. It did momentarily freak me out again. But here's the thing. All of these quote-unquote explanations of an afterlife or near-death experience or anything in that strata are fallacious and need to be rejected in favor of an insistence of proof. It's the only way to stop expecting, anticipating, or fearing what lies beyond and stay focused on the here and now where we belong. It's also one more thing we can do to liberate our minds from the shackles of religious superstition, pop spirituality, and blind belief in anything and stay on a path of thought and experience that leads to living unbound. enjoyed this episode of unbound show topics are chosen based on their timeliness relevance and social impact have suggestions for future topics email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback please don't forget to like share and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms and don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website getunbound.org that's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound. Unbound.